This morning, we wave palm branches to celebrate Palm Sunday. If you're new to the church scene, this is an annual tradition that's been going on for nearly 2,000 years. For Palm Sunday, for believers in Jesus Christ, begins what is known as Holy Week. And it's the day that we celebrate Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly as the king. We find this story in Matthew 21. Let me read it to you. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, he quoting the book of Zechariah and repeated in Isaiah 62, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city of Jerusalem was a buzz because Jesus was coming. And there are two things we need to note about this. The first of which is that Jesus presented himself as the king. Not only because he's coming in fulfillment of prophecies in Zechariah and of Daniel, but specifically because he's riding a donkey. Now, I, I know now if you saw somebody riding a donkey, you wouldn't think of them as the king. But in the first century, when a person would ride specifically a donkey into the king, he's making a proclamation. First, that he's a king. Second, the fact that he's on a donkey tells you that he's a king coming in peace. He's not coming to make war. He's coming to bring peace. Jesus alludes to that in Luke 19. This is donkey symbolism 101 for you. And secondly, the crowd received Jesus as the king. This is noted by them taking off their jackets and putting them on the ground, not something you would just do for anybody. They also cut off palm trees, branches, and waved them shouting, Hosanna, which means something like, save us, save us, we pray. This day marks Jesus' entrance into the city as the king. But the king of a different kind of kingdom. I suppose if we'd have been there on that day, we could have taken a poll. And I can't imagine that anyone waving a palm branch would have forecasted the week ending as it did. I don't think any of them foresaw it. That Jesus would be crucified. That Jesus would willingly go to the cross to be the sacrificial lamb to die for the sins of the world. He was not the king they expected. He was a king of a different kind of kingdom. And praise the Lord 
for that. This morning, as we continue in our series called The Promised Land, we're in the Old Testament book of Joshua. We're going to continue on in that theme of a different kind of kingdom. You'd remember in the book of Joshua that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. When God heard their cries and raised up Moses to deliver them, Moses led them to Kadesh Barnea, where they disobeyed the Lord and were set off to wander for 40 years in the wilderness to pay a price for their disobedience, to miss out on the blessings of God. And then the Lord raises up Joshua to lead the people, to bring them into the promised land. And last week in Joshua 3 and 4, we saw the Lord stop up the Jordan River and Joshua lead the people into the promised land on dry ground. Stacking up stones for remembrance, they finally entered the promised land. We'll pick up the story in chapter 5, where we will be this morning. Joshua 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now these are the powers of the day, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and their kings are now terrified. Why? Because of the God of Israel. You will remember from chapter 2 that this actually mirrors Rahab's confession. That the Canaanites and the Amorites had already heard of the works of the Lord and they were scared. The army in this moment must have been prepared. They crossed the river. This is the day they've been waiting for. This is the day you've trained for. If you wander in the wilderness for 40 years, knowing someday you're going to enter into the land, you had to teach your son how to fight. He wouldn't have known how. You had to begin to prepare and to train your men. They'd worked hard for this moment. The momentum was theirs. The morale was theirs. The battle should begin. And just for a moment, imagine, they're ready to rush in. Think of the movie Braveheart. When their bold leader steps forward, verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives. Sounds good so far and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Wait, we're going to do what? These men are prepared to fight. They've been called to fight. And instead of fighting, they're called to do the exact opposite of fighting. If you ever wondered, that's circumcision. One commentator suggested that it probably took somewhere between 10 to 12 days to circumcise the nearly 1.6 million people. And in case you wondered what Gibeath Haraloth means in Hebrew, it means the mountain of foreskins. It's quite a place to remember. Now, I'm guessing unless you've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, you don't see this story coming. But there are three reasons, at least, why it's necessary. I'll give them to you. 
The first of which is practical. The second is physical. And the third is theological. And that's where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time this morning. What does the Bible say about circumcision? And why is it so important that it shows up throughout the Old Testament and the New? In Acts 7-8, Stephen shortly before he is stoned, speaking to the Sanhedrin, declares that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Now, we remember Abraham having a covenant. We don't often think of it as being a covenant of circumcision. So let's look at the story of Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis 17. We're going to be moving around a lot this morning. You would remember in Genesis 15, God gives and establishes an eternal covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 16, Abraham fails to remember that covenant, fails to remember God's promises. And so in Genesis 17.1, this is what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God is reaffirming the covenant as Genesis 15 continues to say. Then Abram fell on his face. Why? Because a covenantal God was faithful even when he wasn't. It's such a cool truth of the whole scriptures. Even when we fall, when we fail, our God is faithful. God shows back up to Abram to reestablish their relationship. And God said to him, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, continues the promises. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and the king shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you and throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, And as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout all generations. Now pay attention to this part. This is my covenant which you shall keep, God speaking, between me and you and your offspring after you, Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised so that my covenant shall be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What you find in Genesis 17 is that circumcision was given as a sign of a covenant with God. 
It's an external sign of those who are called to be set apart. To declare that they were set apart, those who were called to be obedient, those who belong to the Lord. And that every time it occurred, it was to be a reaffirmation of the covenant between Abraham and his descendants and God. So why circumcision? Why did God call men to remove the foreskins of their penises? I mean, you got to admit you've wondered this, right? You had to have. Without wandering too far into cultural anthropology, let me give you the short version. Circumcision did not start with Israel, and it didn't start in Genesis 17. It had actually already, already been widely practiced, and it's widely practiced all over the world by all kinds of people. But infant circumcision was new. Infant circumcision has no origin outside of Israel. It is found initially in the scriptures. And it basically speaks to a new relationship with God. And God calling his people to be unique and different. And here's how. Because it calls a man to remove the strength of a man before he's even strong. It calls a man to remove the strength of the man before he's even strong. It's to declare that God's people were in fact different from the other tribes. In that, their strength wasn't derived from their flesh, from their being from their ability to work, from their ability to procreate, they were called to be different. That's why it's fitting, if you follow this story through, that Abram could only father the child of promise, Isaac, after he was circumcised at 99. It was theologically necessary for these descendants of Abraham who wanted to claim the promise of Abraham to be obedient to the covenant of Abraham. Hear that. They wanted to claim a promise and they had to be obedient to claim the promise. It's a good word for us. There are lots of promises in the scriptures that are aligned, they're conditional to or our obedience. We like to claim the promise and miss out on the obedience, but what we find here in this text is you got to choose obedience if you want to claim the promise. It's theologically necessary, and it was physically necessary, Joshua 5 verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All 1.6 million. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who'd come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness that had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they didn't, they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey, verse 7. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. 
for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. It was theologically necessary so that they could be obedient to to the promises that they were trying to claim. And now it's physically necessary because they hadn't been practicing it. And so they had to move towards obedience. And it was practical. Circumcision always has a necessary practicality to it that we miss. And this is what it is. You want to teach men about the strength of God? Wound them mightily before you send them into a fight. So that it might be evident. It's not my strength. It wasn't my power. For just a minute, next week we'll walk into the story of Jericho. It'll have its own story. And we'll walk into the stories that follow. They'll all have their own stories. But I want you just to imagine an army of men gathering up, pounding their chests, feeling great about themselves, and then they all get circumcised. And they've all got Band-Aids. And I don't remember how many of you remember the days of having kids and having to go back, but you've got to change the bandages regularly. There's a wound care program to be had here, reminding you that you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as sufficient as you think you are. There's something necessarily practical about circumcision that reminds you it's not pounding your chest that's going to win the fight. It's not the size of your muscles or your experience that's going to win the fight. It's going to be the Lord. And it's going to be so thoroughly before us as we walk through this book. You cannot conquer sin on your own. There is no stack of good works that could merit Jesus Christ. It cannot be done on your own through your flesh. The message to these Israelites would have been clear. Don't rely on your own strength. Instead, New Testament idea, die to yourself. Die to your sufficiency. Die to your strengths. And instead, walk in His power, His sufficiency, and His strength. Paul will give this same lesson in the New Testament to the Galatians. Galatians, by the way, ripe with circumcision talk. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish? Lost myself. Are you so foolish after beginning with this spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul writes to the Galatians to challenge them. You find your salvation in Christ alone. You find your salvation recognizing the whole of the first part of Galatians is about the gospel, about the pure gospel, about the fact that it is only in Jesus Christ we can find our salvation. It's only in Jesus Christ we can find our hope. And yet the Galatians in chapter 3 get this written. Are you so foolish? after beginning with the Spirit, after having come to Christ, that you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort. Are you so dumb that you think you can do it on your own now? Why? Why do you think that after you receive Jesus, now you can walk in your own power and strength? Why do you now depend on yourselves? We need to be reminded of the words of Jesus in John fifteen five. 
apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't have a degree in English. I'm not great at vocabulary, but I do know that nothing means nothing. It means zero. It means zilch. You can accomplish nothing outside of Jesus Christ. Joshua 5, verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And again, you find reference to the Passover, which we'll see next week. It is a huge, huge season. And here the reproach of Egypt refers, just so you can know, to the disobedience of the previous generation, the generation of Egypt, which brought about the period of wandering, which brought about their death in the desert, that these people had moved from disobedience to obedience. They were called to covenant obedience, and now they're pursuing covenant obedience by obeying, by falling in line with God's word. So what do we do with Joshua 5? Because it's not going to be us circumcising all the men. I can assure you of that. But I believe the main lesson in this chapter is clear to them and should be for us. That there can be no conquest. There can be no promised land without first dying to self and choosing obedience. Which is to say this. Before the Jews could get victory over their enemy, before they could inherit the full blessings that God had for them, they had to choose obedience and they had to fully identify themselves with Him so that they could be obedient. So what does this look like for you? Is it circumcision? The New Testament will speak to that, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, in Christ, we'll talk about that here in a moment. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul, now writing, to Gentiles and Jews, discounts circumcision, but not completely. Watch what he writes in 1 Corinthians 7. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. That's what counts. Do you see how he's paralleled obedience? What was keeping the Israelites in dis, under the discipline of God was their disobedience. And yet, we're called now to choose obedience, not circumcision. You want to walk in the blessings of God? Obey His Word. Now, we walked through a five-week series on sanctification before we got here to make it clear that I'm not saying to you that if you want to be saved, you have to obey God. No, salvation, justification, by His blood alone is salvation. And yet those who are saved, those who are in Jesus Christ, are called then to pursue obedience. 
and blessing. So what's that look like? Ephesians 1.13, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, it probably comes out of me every three weeks. And you were also included in Christ. I choose the NIV 1984 edition because I love how it states it. And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul makes it very and very clear and abundantly clear that to be in Christ means that you hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you believe. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to be in Christ? Believe. That's the first step in Christianity, in faith, is believe in Jesus. Believe in the gospel for your salvation. But God doesn't just save you from sin. He saves you to something. There's the whole reason we walk through sanctification. Paul writes in Colossians 2, 9 through 12. For in Christ. For in Christ. This is you. If you've believed, Paul says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, and you have been given fullness in Christ. That if you've believed in Christ, you've been given fullness of Christ. The fullness of the deity of Christ. That doesn't make you deified by any stretch of the imagination. That just means that Jesus Christ, who was God, is now with you in fullness. Who's the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done with the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. There's not skin being cut off here in Colossians, but your heart is being pruned. You've been circumcised in your belief. You were cut off from your sinful nature. Does that mean you'll stop sinning? Never. It does mean you're put off from your sinful nature. But watch this, verse 12. But with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. What you find in Colossians is a New Testament version of an Old Testament practice, and it's baptism. That God would call his people to be publicly identified with him. You see in the Old Testament, circumcision. Is circumcision still a thing in the New Testament? No. Paul says, and that this isn't saying you're not believe, you're not a believer if you haven't been baptized. It's saying because you're a believer, you've been baptized. I'm wearing a wedding ring because I'm married. I, I could have bought this for 24 bucks and worn it anyway. But it wouldn't be a wedding ring. I don't have to have a, a ring on my face. Look, I'm still married. She's sitting over here. But I have a 
physical sign of the reality to remind myself that I've been married. That's what baptism serves as. It's a public identifier of the reality of a spiritual shift. So as we start and we keep moving through the book of Joshua, we have to pause for at least a moment to acknowledge this. That Joshua had to lead his people towards obedience if they were going to go into the promised land. They had to pursue circumcision, which means i got to stop for a moment and call us. If you love Jesus Christ, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if you find yourself in Jesus Christ, the first way you identify with him is through baptism. And if you've never done it, you're disobeying Scripture. Do you see that? Doesn't mean you're not a believer. Doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that after you get dunked, all of a sudden life gets rosy, happy, and everything's good. No, it's just obedience. It's obedience. And the second sign you would find it through the scriptures that you identify with Jesus Christ. First is baptism. And the second thing is that you would choose obedience. That our lives would begin to look more and 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 more like Jesus. That's how the world should testify that you're different. Baptisms traditionally have always been held in public. I don't know why churches move them inside. It was a bad PR move. Because here's the thing. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take the dirtiest, rotten sinner in the city. And that's like us, right? And we're supposed to stand them in front of a group of people and go, hey, this guy, the dirty, rotten sinner, is now professing Jesus Christ. And then we dunk him into the water. He is related to Jesus Christ in his death. He's brought back up as a new man. And then the whole city goes, hey, that's why he doesn't cuss anymore. That's why he's different. I get it now. And so it becomes this great testimony. That's the practice of baptism in the New Testament that we're called for. And then you see that progression of growth in his life. Why circumcision? Why baptism? Because we have a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. We want to believe in our flesh that what Jesus has for us is health, wealth, and prosperity, don't we? But it sure isn't what this book promises us. We want to believe that in Jesus Christ, all, like it's all going to get good, it's going to be sweet, I'm never going to, my kids are all going to obey all the time. We just want to think that we're in, walking into this place of permanent blessing. And it's just not true. We have a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. He called his people to weakness so that his strength could be shown. And he calls us to the same thing. Baptism says, I can't do it on my own. I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a guy who said, Christianity is a crutch. And I said, you bet it is. And I couldn't live without it. Brother, I'm ready to take a walker of Jesus if you give it to me. We don't proclaim our strength. We don't proclaim our sufficiency. We don't proclaim our power. 
We serve a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And as they walk into the promised land, God wanted to make that abundantly clear to these Israelites through all these battles that they're about to start walking into. And by the way, Jericho is totally foolish. Why? He's a different kind of king and it's a different kind of kingdom. God wants to show off his power through your weakness. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, as I read through your word, I find all kinds of really poor battle plans. And it's because I want to operate in my flesh. It's because I want to operate in my strengths. It's because I want you to make us look really good and not your son. And yet, Father, there's a reality in this book that what's supposed to look good is your son and not us. For he is the only one that's sufficient. He's the only one that was perfect. Could it be, Lord, that you could take a group of people like us, people who have believed in you, people who have identified with you, and use us to point others to yourself? Father, Thank you for exposing the weakness in these Israelites to challenge them that it couldn't be their strength that they walked in. Father, as we go forward from today, may we not walk the rest of this day thinking that we're that strong, that we're that sufficient, or that we could do it on our own. May we just look to you, may we look to your son to find the complete sufficiency for everything we need until you come back for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are entirely sufficient for my weaknesses, for my failures, for my struggles. Thank you that you've never called me to have to be enough, because you already are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.